take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today in chapter 9, we'll be reading and studying together Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 uh, to the end of verse 10. That reading begins on page 557 of our cart Bibles. And as we begin, I want you to know that uh, almost every single one of the commentators that I read this week and studied for this passage in one way or another agreed with the statement that one of them made. Uh, That is, that this passage, the first ten verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, is among, if not the, most pessimistic passage in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. You'll see why as we begin to read it. Uh, But we also need to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is thoroughly good news, and it is thoroughly good news that makes sense only against the dark backdrop of our situation in sin and death, and that is exactly what we will see today. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, we will see what our vain lives amount to if, in fact, our vain lives are all that we have. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 10, and before we do, please join me again in a word of prayer as we seek God's blessing on our reading and our study. Let's pray. O Lord and gracious God, we thank you for this word. Even though it may be hard to hear some of the things here, we pray that Solomon's words, inspired by your Holy Spirit, would be goads to push us toward Jesus Christ and faith in him. O Lord, we confess that we are dead apart from you in our sins and our trespasses, but we pray for life. We pray for the continued life of trusting in your Son. Do your work through your word in us, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil. And all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge, 
or wisdom and Sheol to which you are going. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, in uh, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. As Christians, we believe that. We trust in that. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. It is the faith that stands as a foundation of, of the Christianity, of the religion that we proclaim. It is also the faith that pretty consistently puts us at odds with a pretty sizable minority of our neighbors and our friends. Consistently, beginning in the 1960s, for as long as the pollsters have been polling, statistics have revealed that roughly 25% of Americans, spanning across religious affiliation, believe in nothing like a heaven or a hell or any kind of life after this life is done and over. 25%. Now, there are problems, of course, with self-reporting surveys, and those are national figures that have not been adjusted for the differences between, say, Mississippi and, and Massachusetts. But let's give those surveys uh, the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Let's say that at least one in four Americans, broadly speaking, would, would agree with Stephen Hawking's statement that the afterlife is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Then again, depending on the circles that you run in, depending on the people that you work with, the number in your micro-population might be much higher than one in four. Uh, you might encounter a majority of your close contacts who disbelieve in life after death. And it might just be that in the circles in which you run, that disbelief is so prevalent, so normal, that you begin to look around at your friends. Even though you believe in the gospel, you look at your unbelieving friends and you begin to ask yourself the question, well, I wonder how bad it could be. Now, they don't seem to be so racked with despair like I would expect someone who, who doesn't believe in the afterlife to be racked with despair. They don't seem to be too troubled by the things that are going on here if this life is all there is. So maybe it's just a matter of learning not to be afraid of the dark. Maybe it's enough to embrace the joys and the pleasures that this world can offer us under the sun. Paul says hope in this life only is a terribly pitiful thing, but sometimes we're tempted to wonder how bad could it be? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 into 10, is here to tell us how bad it really is. I want to warn you again that as we begin, there is no light at the end of this tunnel once we begin to study this passage. There is no hope to be found in these 10 verses, and that is for a reason. The reason is that Solomon is trying to make a point, and he wants to make that point just as plain and as clear as he can. And the point that he is making is that there is nothing in our vain lives that can give us hope in the face of our death. There is no magnanimous virtue. There is no hedonistic pleasure. There is no experience of earthly joys that can compensate us for the loss that we will experience at death if death is all there is. 
That means that these verses are not intended to give us the answers that we need, but rather to show us the questions that all of us ought to be asking. So what if this life is all that there is? How bad could it be? I want to look at these verses today in three main points. I want us to see first the power of death. Then I want us to look at the hope of life. And finally, at the joys of pleasure. The power of death, the hope of life, and the joys of pleasure. We see the power of death first in uh, verses 1 through 3. And specifically, Solomon is teaching us here that death has the power to level the playing field among everyone who has ever had breath in their lungs. It is the final end that comes to all, and it comes regardless of, of how well or how poorly you have lived this life. Take a look at verse 2. It's the same for all. The same happens to all. To the righteous, the wicked, to the good, to the evil, to the clean, to the unclean. The same event. And then look at verse 3. The same event happens to all. It's all so much evil. It's all so much madness. And then they go to the grave. Sooner or later, he's saying, all the sound and all the fury of our lives will die down. And it doesn't matter whether it was harmony or cacophony that preceded the quiet. Silence is silence. And when death comes, it's all the same for everyone in the end. That's the point he's making here. But you need to know that as he's making this point, he's doing so uh, by giving us the worldview of the religious skeptic. We've seen this before. Ecclesiastes, in many ways, is a work of apologetic. I said that all the way back in chapter 1, that what Solomon wants us to see is the outlook of those who restrict life to what we can see and experience under the sun. And Solomon is pulling back the curtain and saying, this is how powerful death is, if that is all we have. He's taking on the worldview of the religious skeptic. And we know that that's what he's doing because he's using the tactic that religious skeptics love to use. He is isolating biblical doctrines and examining them only in isolation so that he can answer them and try to cancel them with human experience. The first biblical doctrine that he isolates is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Take a look at verse 1. He says, I examined it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. That's the doctrine that most of us find incredible comfort in in the scriptures. To be in the hand of God is to be guided, it's to be protected, it's to be led according to his Perfect purposes, Jesus said to his people in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And how we long to know that our lives are in the hands of our Savior. Wearing the mask of the skeptic, Solomon says, you know what, I'll grant you the sovereignty of God. I'll let you have it. You're, you're in the hand of God. Great, but what I will not give you is the goodness of God. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. You know, you look at your experiences in some of the past chapters that we've read, 6 and 7 and 8, 
uh, wrestling with the question of why is it that often those who seem to be the worst in the world prolong their lives and those who seem to be the best in the world die an early death. This is the argument of the religious skeptic. It's the age-old question, why do good things happen to bad people? And the skeptic says, if God is all-powerful, then we cannot trust him to be all-good. Death and suffering force you to choose, would say the skeptic, between God's sovereignty and his compassion. And then he takes up another, uh, another doctrine now in verse 2, is the doctrine of practical godliness. Verse 2 encapsulates a daily Israelite religion in a single verse. There are the righteous and then there are the wicked, the clean and the unclean. There are those who participate in the sacrifices. There are those who go to the temple and they take oaths before the Lord to partake in his covenant faithfulness. And then there are those who just say, forget the whole thing. The idolaters and the profligates and the, uh, the apostates and the covenant breakers. And skeptic Solomon says that when they die, the one is just as dead as the other. We could reduce it to a mathematical equation. It is a variable multiplied by a constant. P times D equals X, right? And if P stands for your daily piety and D stands for death, it doesn't matter what value you give to your daily religion, so long as death remains fixed at zero, X will always come out to be the same. And he's saying it doesn't really matter how good or how poorly you live your life. The same event happens to everybody. Death will always level the playing field. And finally, he takes up the doctrine of our human depravity. Interestingly, this doctrine is one that religious skeptics have a history of agreeing with, <laughs> human depravity. Michael Ruse is uh, an atheistic author who describes himself as a philosophical naturalist. He also wrote, though, he says this, I think Christianity is spot on about original sin. How could one think otherwise when the civilization that gave us Beethoven and Goethe and Kant also embraced Hitler and participated in the Holocaust? I agree with his conclusion. I hope you do as well. But the question is, as a philosophical naturalist, what's the big takeaway from Hitler and the Holocaust? I'll try better next time. Hope it doesn't happen to you. Pity that he got away with it as long as he did. You see, the skeptic doesn't mind agreeing with original sin and total depravity. It makes a lot of sense to agree with verse 3, that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. But for the skeptic, death doesn't answer that depravity with God's judgment. Death is merely proof that there's nobody paying attention. There's evil, and there's madness, and after that, the grave, and that's all we can expect from this life. You need to see that when he shows us the power of death, Solomon is confronting us with an earthbound existence taken to logical extremes. So long as we deny that there's anything beyond the life and death that we can see with our senses, death is the end that makes all of our lives inconsequential. How bad could it be, we ask? Well, if we have hope in this life only, sovereignty is a gamble. Piety is useless. 
and depravity amounts to a mockery of justice rather than a cry that somebody should take notice and right the wrongs that we all end up suffering. And so if all we see is all there is, then death has the power to take all of our colors of joy and virtue and community and advancement, all the rainbows of love and family and society and culture and paint them with nothing but the deep black of the grave. If we have hope in this life only, that's the power of death. Well then, what about the hope of life? Here's when the argument gets interesting. Because in verses 1 through 3, Solomon is engaging in this thought experiment and he is essentially agreeing with the skeptical worldview to make his point. But it's now in verses 4 to 6 that Solomon begins to push back on some of the conclusions that the religious skeptic comes to after they look at this vain life. In the same interview that Stephen Hawking made his comment about the afterlife being a fairy story, he was also asked, well, how should we live our lives? He responded simply by saying that we should seek the greatest value of our actions. That's like a beauty pageant answer. right? When you first hear it, it sounds magnanimous. It, it sounds pretty good, but, but then you realize that it's not saying much of anything at all. It doesn't answer any of the important questions that we might ask of that. Stephen Hawking says we should seek uh, the greatest value of our actions, but we might want to ask, well, what makes one action valuable and another action worthless? How do we determine these things? Is, is the value of an action defined personally or is it defined societally? Or even we might want to ask that all-important question that every five-year-old loves to ask. Why? Right? Why is value better than non-value? Why is action better than non-action? Why is life better than non-existence? And here is where Solomon begins to push back. Take a look at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now forget every video you've ever seen of the dog whisperer training troubled pooches, right? In ancient Israel, dogs were not man's best friend. They were filthy, disgusting scavengers who roamed through the wastelands. Lions, on the other hand, were powerful. They were, they were regal. They were the symbol of kings. And the proverb that he's quoting here is teaching us that there's hope in existence no matter how meager that existence might be. So as long as we live, we have something to hope for. But keep reading. He who's joined with all the living has hope. Why? Well, because, verse 5, the living know that they will die. <laughs> That's all we have. That's what it amounts to. Consciousness. We're aware of our situation. And what are we aware of? That that situation is going to end and leave us with nothing. Peter Enns says that Solomon's tongue is firmly pressed into his cheeks at this moment. The only value of existence is the awareness that existence is soon to be over. It's a jab at the skeptic who imagines that their brief life will amount to something lasting and significant. What's the value of all that hope once you're dead? What will become of your love? What will become of your hatred? What will even become of the envy that motivates you to... to, to advance and to achieve and to overcome. 
What will happen to all those things once you've perished? What will be left of the value of your actions once you have, as Solomon says, no more share in all that is done under the sun? What will be left of your memory when all those people who knew you in life are also themselves lying in the dust of the dead? You see, Solomon is pushing back against this under-the-sun view of life. He's doing so with the persistent logic of a five-year-old. Why? What's the point? If all that we are and all that we accomplish will be eradicated in death, what lasting hope can a productive life offer us? Actually, there is a way that the brevity of life ought to spur us on to greater and better and more productive actions. You know that little rhyme, right? Only one life, which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. There's a way that the brevity of life should spur us on and motivate us, but that motivation, that hope, belongs only to believers. It belongs to those who trust that the word Christ spoke to Martha beside her brother's tomb is true. Jesus said, John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? You see, it hinges on that last question, whether this is good for us. Do you believe this? Well, if we know that to be true, there's hope among the living. There's hope that even in our death, we will participate in the life that Jesus Christ came to give to his people. But the point of Solomon's sarcastic argument in verses 4 to 6 is that if there are people who have hope in this life only, and those people also think that this life is the hope that makes life worth living, they're the ones who are not paying attention. Because one day death will come. It will come with all of its leveling power, and the hope of this life will prove empty. That's the hope of life if this life is all there is. It's empty. It's a false hope. It is a dead end, darker than a tomb. It is a hope without a future to hope for. Well then, at least we have the joys of pleasure, don't we? This is perhaps the oldest response of humanity to the realization of our mortality. Maybe tomorrow we die, but today at least we can eat and we can drink. We can dress well and we can pursue all of the success that we want to find in the world. But verses 7 to 10, this last section, these are the ones that catch us off guard. This is another argument that we've seen before in Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is the fifth, the final, what's called carpe diem commands in the book of Ecclesiastes. This command to do what you can while you can with what the Lord gives you. But there's a difference here, and we'll see it. Because earlier when Solomon urged us to make the most of what we have while we have it, uh, to make the most of our experiences of joy there, they were genuine reminders that God is the one who gives good gifts to his children. Some of his gifts are mentioned here. There's food to, uh, to grace our taste buds, to fill our stomachs. There is fine wine, aged, and, uh, and given to gladden the hearts of men, like the psalmist says. He mentions white festive garments and 
and probably aromatic anointing oil, these small little uh, daily blessings that make life more bearable in a hot desert climate. And then verse 9 is the greatest gift on this list for sure. The ancient rabbis taught that he who lives without a wife lives without good, without help, without joy, without blessing, and without atonement. Solomon's more to the point. He says that within a marriage there's enjoyment. It's just good. (laughs) It makes life better. It makes life enjoyable. There's love in a covenant commitment. There's affection. There's the hope of a family. There's a partner for life. In various ways, we have seen Solomon commend these joys and these pleasures before. They are gifts to be received with joy from the hand of God. They are drops of honey to sweeten our brief, vain lives under the sun. But here, in this context, in this passage, these joys and pleasures take on a different flavor. They're more like the little scroll that you might remember in John's apocalyptic vision. Chapter 10, when an angel appears and John is told to take a little scroll and to eat it, and he does, and Revelation 10.10 says that it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. In this context, there's a bitterness to these sweet things. You notice the turn in verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and all your toil with which you toil under the sun. There's that repetition of the language under the sun. This is all you get here. You may remember back in the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, the grand question was, what reward do we have? And consistently, the search for reward as we examine life under the sun has been reduced from reward to portion. Your daily allotment, this is all that you get. There's love, and there's marriage, and there's happiness, and there's enjoyment, but it's brief. This vain life that you live under the sun. And so maybe in this life, a bit of joy will be enough. A little bread, a little wine, a little sex, a little work. Maybe that will be enough to make life worth living, but if we have hope in this life only, Reality is, when these things are over, they're over, really over, and completely gone. And so Phil Riken says that at the end of verse 10, Solomon is not denying the reality of an afterlife, but actually I think he is. He's not denying it for himself or, or for believers, mind you. He's denying it for the sake of the argument. Very clearly what he's doing, he, just to make us consider the unbelieving worldview with utter unflinching consistency. For those who think that this life under the sun is sufficient, what he does in verse 10 is he breathes life into all of our earthly joys so, just so that we can watch them wither and die and be buried in the grave. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Why? Because there's no work no thought, no knowledge, no wisdom and shield to which you're going. If that's your worldview, if that's what you think is coming, that's all you've got, is nothing. So he's stepping into the skeptic's creed, you understand. There's no life but this one. There's no existence beyond earthly horizons. And we say, how bad could it be, right? 
If we had hope in this life, that's more than many have. But what could we possibly be missing? Sure, it may be that death comes in and it nullifies all of our good and all of our bad and all in our indifference and it paints it with one broad black stroke. Sure, life itself is a dead-end hope. The only blessing, the awareness that soon it's going to be over. But at least we have pleasure. At least we have work and wine and marriage and money. So we look at our neighbors and they seem happy enough with their unbelief. And they're content to fill their schedules with appointments, to, to fill their days with delights. They're content to tell themselves that all we see is all that there is, and therefore, a life well lived is its own reward. Until it isn't. And Solomon wants you to know how bad it really is. Because if we have hope in this life only, that hope will die just as soon as we do, and probably sooner. But what's worse, I think, is a realization that those who have hope in this life only have no hope for the life that will come when the day of eternity dawns. I told you at the beginning that in these ten verses, we do not find the answer to the problem of our mortality. Rather, we find the questions that we should be answer asking. And to find the answer, we have to go beyond this thought experiment into the mind of the skeptic. And when we do, when we press forward to see what Solomon really believes, what we find later in this passage, in this book, is that he wants us to push us. He wants to push us to use this life to prepare for what comes next. Take a look in chapter 11, verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Look also at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw wit near in which you say, I have no pleasure in them. Look down at verse 7, chapter 12. Those days before the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The reality is that this life is never enough because this life is not all there is. There is a God who judges justly, and there is a judgment we all must face. And it doesn't matter if you hold it as true or believe that it's a fairy story. God has revealed in his word, it is appointed unto all men, once to die and then to face the judgment. And he also tells us what Christians know and trust and love with all their heart, that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. That he's the one who's come down to give himself as a ransom for many. That he's the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. The Lord in his word tells us that Jesus Christ is the advocate that will stand in the place of his people on that last day, who will intercede for them, who will be a helper to them, who will plead their case and bring us into his eternal dwellings where we'll behold his light and glory and joy forever. I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few people here who struggle to believe some of that, even among this nice, clean group of Presbyterians, there may be some who struggle 
and look at the people around them and wonder, how bad could it be? And they need to be reminded. Maybe they're here. Maybe they'll listen some other time later on. Maybe the Lord will use this sermon, I don't know, to, to bring them to faith that, that they've been fighting against for quite some time. Who knows what the Lord might be doing here? But I can tell you, I do know, that at least one out of every four of your neighbors, at least one out of every four of your co-workers, at least one out of every four of your friends in the next town have absolutely no idea how bad things are. And that number's probably higher. At least one of every, out of every four are living their lives and passing their time, engaging in temporary joys that will evaporate when they take their last breath. Many of them have no idea how bad things are and no idea how good things could be. They have no idea what joy exists for believers even now in the land of the living, what peace of consciousness, of conscience, what forgiveness of sins. Do you realize that there is no forgiveness of sins in philosophical naturalism? Why would you need there to be? That's the mantra, right? Who is there to forgive? What is there to be forgiven? There is no sin. There is no judgment. There is no punishment to be feared. But just because the mantra says there is no sin does not mean that there is no guilt. It does not mean that there is no remorse. It does not mean that there is no aching, gnawing regret over the sins we know we've committed that our consciences will not let us forget even when our society tells us we ought to ignore them. And one in four have no idea what Christ offers. They don't believe what the gospel proclaims. And they haven't known what hope really feels like. And dear Christians, who will tell them if not you? Who will tell them how bad it really is? Who will show them how good things could be? Who will speak to them of the hope of the gospel? Who will tell them of the promise of eternal life in Jesus? This is the answer that we need. And this is the answer that we need to speak as well. Please join me in prayer. Oh Lord and gracious God, we thank you. Christ being resurrected from the dead is resurrected as the first fruits. Through him and his sacrifice for sinners, he gathers his children to himself in faithfulness. He gives the gift of eternal life, which is to know him, to know him forever. We thank you, Lord, for the promises that we receive as true. Help us to be people who not only believe it, but live it and speak it in our lives as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.